teaching environment. And so that, that's, that's what this is. And so I want to begin with something, um, this idea of atheism and skepticism. Because I, I, last week I started uh, the, 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 this series off with bringing to the forefront of our minds passages uh, that seemingly are contradictory, errors in Scripture, and confusing passages. And I brought those up and really didn't answer anything last week. And so if you left here just like, wait, where is he going with this? Why This is confusing. Does, does he even believe in the Bible? What's going on here? Um, I, I understand that, that the last week I was really bringing questions to the forefront of our mind as if someone was skeptical or an atheist what was in here thinking through what the Bible is and, and thinking through contradictions and errors. And I did that because I think, um, and, and I had, had someone agree with me that I think is, is pretty cool, um, that, that skepticism, atheism as almost a religion is kind of the new religion that America is moving towards. And, and I, I think that, um, I think that maybe uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the, the, the movement then of this new popular religion of, you know, secular worldly uh, uh, United States of America was, oh, whatever's true for you is true for you. Whatever's true for me is true for me. I'll take bits and pieces of the world's religion, you know, like a dollop of, of Buddhism, a helping of Hinduism, maybe a little serving of Christianity, mix it together, and that's my religion. I've kind of mixed and matched things that I like about different religions, and it's true for me. But whatever you believe is true for you. And the, everyone was kind of, not everyone, but the, the general idea was there was a lot of spirituality. And if you called yourself an atheist maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you were an atheist, people would look at you like you were insane, like you had secret satanic seances in the garage and like killed cats and ate them or something. People are like, whoa, you're an atheist? You know, why do you hate God? Why do you hate the church? What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? Um, but I think that's the old atheism. And there's even a movement, if you, you could Wikipedia it and, and Google search this idea of the, the new atheism that's, that's becoming popular today. And it's this atheistic movement that's just about um, skepticism. It's not about like hating God or hating the church. It's just we're skeptical. And um, I was talking to this guy named Gary Poole, who's kind of like a, an evangelist, uh, kind of like a, he comes to churches and and cast vision for evangelism. In fact, he's the guy we're going to announce in the Sunday morning service. He's the guy coming tonight at 630 in the tent. If you're interested in evangelism, he's kind of the guy that I would say is an expert on the matter. And anyways, I got to go out to lunch with him and a few other uh, uh, New Life staff members. And I asked him the question, do you think that's true? Do you think that the that our culture is moving to more of an atheistic, skeptic um, religion rather than just a spirituality of whatever's true is, is true for you, true for me, true for me, etc. And he said yes. He, he believes that, that our, you know, our world is becoming much more skeptical of religion and belief. And there's lots of uh, famous authors coming out now with books that like kind of in a way want atheists to come out of the closet of atheism and be free to say, I'm an atheist. That's what I believe, that I don't believe there's a God. It, whereas, you know, maybe a few years ago it was looked upon as a very negative thing. And so authors like Sam Harris or Dawkins, Richard Dawkins have come out and said that. And then maybe you know of famous atheists. Um, here's a list I found on the internet. You could double check these. But Lance Armstrong, atheist. Bill Gates, atheist. Ricky Gervais, atheist. Eddie Vedder, atheist. Woody Allen, atheist. Richard Dreyfus, atheist. Larry King, atheist. Dave Matthews, atheist. Sean Penn, an atheist. Uma Thurman, an atheist. And the list went on uh, of, the, of these famous people and movie stars, etc., that were atheists. And I just thought, gosh, this is, an, this is a movement that seems to be growing. It is a movement, especially amongst college students and 20-somethings, that, you know, colleges 
have all these um, new groups popping up, the atheist movement, the reason movement, the skeptics movement, that are almost, these groups are almost like religions or philosophy clubs within uh, colleges. And I, I saw some numbers that in 07, there was a study that done that, that said that the number of these groups, atheistic uh, groups at colleges doubled in one year across the United States. And it's like, this is it's seemingly the, the new movement of, of religion that people are becoming skeptical of religion, of belief, of the Bible. And so all that to say, we need to combat this kind of thought and say, you know, the Bible is worthy of, of our reading. We do believe it is true. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And so we need to come against those, that atheistic skeptic movement that says it's just garbage. It's just another ancient book full of legends and myths. And so um, that's kind of what they believe. But I wanted to give you a quick discussion question, maybe just like a two minute. So very quick, jump right into a group. If you're at a small table, jump right in with a large group if you wanted to. Um, and very quickly, just talk about what, what do atheists believe about the Bible? It should be a fairly simple question. If you know any atheists or you have tendencies towards skepticism yourself or whatever. So um, think about this. I'll just give you two minutes. What do atheists believe about the Bible? Ready, get set, go. So what, what did you guys talk about? Yes, Aaron. Yeah, so He's, he talked about the Epic of Gilgamesh and maybe that that book is mythology. So maybe atheists would just say, oh, it's just mythology like other myths and ancient myths. What else? Anybody? Any ideas? Yeah, some say Jesus never even existed. He was just a myth. And, and so, yeah, so he just, it's not historical at all. It's just some story. What else? Anybody? It's a what? Astrocism? What's astrocism? Early offshoot of Roman beliefs. Okay, so it's just once maybe similar to what was said. It's mythology. It's just retelling of stories and myths. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he says just a bunch of stories that aren't true. Yeah, what else? Okay. Okay, yeah, so he said, if you couldn't hear him, he said um, that... That the, some, there may be, some atheists would agree that there's some historicity, that's a fun word, everybody say it, historicity, uh, there's some historical evidence that maybe Jesus did exist, but they would say, well, he couldn't possibly have raised from the dead, because that's not what happens. Or he couldn't have possibly healed someone of blindness, because that doesn't happen today. And so those parts were added in, even though there's some real history on top of maybe myth that got added in. And so that's, that's really what atheists believe about the Bible. And I would go further and say that the things that we talked about last week, the questions we raised last week were from a, a very skeptic mindset of, of, of thinking, okay, if you don't believe in the Bible and you start reading the Bible from the perspective of non-belief, 
then you're probably reading it for to find little errors, to find contradictions. You're reading it to be able to find reasons why you shouldn't believe in the book. And I know a few atheists. I had some uh, cool friendships with the, this atheist club at Pikes Peak Community College. And I know that some of them read the entire Bible, looking all the way through it for errors and passages that don't make sense. It's like, here God seems to be mean. Here God seems to be nice. This doesn't make any sense. This is a contradiction. And so they would read it for, read it as if it's not true, and read it to find those problems in the Bible, the errors, the contradictions, the things that don't make sense. And so they would be reading it for that and then bring those to the forefront of their decision as to why the Bible is not true. And so last week, if you were here, uh, once again, I really started the series with lots of questions about um, the contradictory passages, the errors in Scripture. What do these things, what would an atheist bring to the table and say, look, here's, here's reason number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Keep going with why I think the Bible is not true. And they would list out for you contradictions and errors and things. And last week we, we talked about these two terms, inerrancy and infallibility. And I said, I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe the Bible is infallible. We just need to define those terms a little better <coughs> than just the, the inerrant means literally without error. Infallibility means without falseness or without uh, does not deceive. And I said, that, that's great. And we believe the Bible is without error and without falseness. But what does that really mean? Does that, does that mean the Bible is without ever having a typo in it? Is that, well, maybe the Bible could have a typo in it and it would still be inerrant and infallible. Well, does that mean the Bible um, is exempt of any spelling errors? Like what if there was a translation out there that had a spelling error? Or what if we even found manuscripts, old manuscripts with a, with a spelling error in it? Does that mean we throw out the Bible in the trash can and get off the bus? Does that mean it's not inerrant or infallible? How do we talk about these terms? Or what if there's a copyist error? What if um, someone was copying, because it was just way before printing press, way before the internet, um, when when people would hand write, hand copy the Bible. And so what if some uh, scribe made a mistake and that mistake got passed on? They misspelled a word or they took out a word accidentally. Um, does that, does, is the Bible still inerrant and infallible? I would argue yes. Yes, it is. It's still inerrant. It's still infallible. But, but it can have some copious errors. It can have some typos. It can have some spelling errors. And I thought of an example. I thought of the newspaper. And I think I mentioned this last week, but didn't talk about it, I don't think, clearly enough. Um, at least now looking back, I think like a newspaper article, you could be reading a newspaper article about a news, an event that took place, and it's true. If there's historicity. Uh, there's the, the documents, that the, a good newspaper writer, what are they called? Journalist, yeah, a good journalist will do the research. They'll go to the place. They will have primary sources and documents to back up what they have found. A good journalist will do all that. And so what if they write out this article, and then as you're reading this article about this event that happened, you find in the middle of it a spelling error. Do you rip up the article? Do you start cussing and throw the whole newspaper in the trash and say, this this is just trash. It's ridiculous. This, uh, this, none of it's true because I found a spelling error. Do you do that? No, you would just say, look, you'd be, you'd almost be like, oh, sweet, look what I found, a spelling error. How cool is this? You'd be excited about this. That's what I would do, at least. It was like, man, I, my grammar and reading is good enough to find a spelling error in someone else's work, which is hardly ever the case because I'm a horrible speller myself. But that would be, you wouldn't, 
You wouldn't think like that. And so why, and I would argue in the same way, why would you treat the Bible as if it has to be totally perfect without spelling errors or without copyist errors or without um, those kinds of things in it? And so we talked about that last week. I put up this last week, and so I'll briefly just go over this. We do podcast the Sunday School messages, so if you're like, wait, I missed that part. Yeah, you could go back and and re-listen if you want or if you weren't here last week. And I talked about um, there's types of confusing passages in the Bible. There's translational, and today I'm adding the word scribal, translational slash scribal. Uh, We talked about how the bottom of your page of your Bible sometimes has notes at the bottom that say some manuscripts say this or that, and other manuscripts say this instead of that. And so those would be the the scribal um, passages that would be confusing and potentially lead an atheist to say, look, I found an error. One manuscript says this word, another manuscript says this word. Look, I found an error. You need to throw out your book. We would say, no, it's just a small, it's just a copyist error. It's it's tiny. It's, it's just two different words meaning roughly the same things. Anyways, um, we talked last week about the scientific, um, maybe, I don't even know what we call them, errors that an atheist would say, look, your Bible says that the Pi, like the number pi, is just three, whereas we know pi is 3.15928. Some of you have it memorized, whatever. Um, and, and, so, and so we talked about that passage last week. Or Jesus says that mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Scientifically speaking, it's not the smallest of all seeds. So how, you know, an atheist would just throw this in our face and say, look, here's an error. How can you believe this book is true? Because Jesus talked about the smallest seed being the mustard seed, and it's not. And, you know, our answer to that is coming this, we'll talk more about scientific stuff uh, later this month, either next week or the week after fall retreat. So I'll kind of leave you in suspense about that one. Um, The next one is the difficult passages, like, uh, an atheist might say, look, here, this passage, God is so nice and loving. And then look, the Old Testament passage, this, this passage has God killing people. How, how, this is contradictory. This is a difficult passage. And so uh, I'll answer that kind of uh, a little bit next week or the week after fall retreat. Um, and then there's another idea of self-contradictions are w- within the Bible. There's, there's like 1 Kings 4.26 says that Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his horses. And then that story is retold in 2 Chronicles 9.25 that says Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his horses. Well, which one is it? There's a difference between 40,000 and 4,000, right? There's a pretty big difference. Um, but but maybe um, the answer, I, I looked into this passage, the answer is probably he had 4,000 and that the error crept in somewhere where a scribe was maybe copying and they put in the word 40 instead of four. And so that's, we think that Solomon had 4,000 horse stalls instead of 40. And that was an error that crept into scripture and made its way to a few manuscripts. Some of the earliest ones have 40 instead of four. And so what do we do with that? Well, it's, it's, we just say that's, it is what it is. It's an ancient book that's been copied I don't know, thousands of times, handwritten. Somebody made an error along the way. Does that mean we just throw out the entire Bible, rip it up and start cussing and throw it in the trash can and get off the bus? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't do that. I mean, I saw this passage and I didn't start cussing or screaming. Um, and so don't do that. It's just like you would treat a newspaper if you found a typo in it. That's what I think. And so um, we talked about these passages today. We are going to talk about specifically the translational and scribal issues. And we'll, we'll save the scientific, the difficult, the self-contradictions for later. And so if I've stirred up some thoughts in your head about, yeah, the science of the Bible or those difficult passages or the self-contradictions, hey, what is this stuff? We will get to it next week or the week after fall retreat. So today, translational scribal stuff. If you're taking notes, these are kind of the points towards the bottom 
of the page. There's two points. We're going to talk about how the Bible was written and then how the Bible was passed on. And so let's begin with how the Bible was written first. And um, I'll ask the simple question, was the Bible written by God himself? Some of you are like, well, that's a good question. Maybe, uh, yes, no. Um, I, I, uh, we do have human authors writing the books. And so sometimes it begins with like a letter from Paul to the Corinthians. He says, I'm Paul writing a letter to the Corinthians. So is it written by God? No, it's written by Paul. But there is one passage that is written by God himself. Maybe you know it. It's uh, the Ten Commandments. Did you know that like Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, uh, went down, saw people partying, and broke the Ten Commandments, then goes up to the mountain. It's a long story in Exodus uh, like 30-ish. And then goes back up, and God himself writes on two tablets the commandments. And so did God write the Bible? Well, at least he wrote the Ten Commandments. But even that, so you would think like, okay, God himself wrote this on a tablet, gave it to Moses. People started copying it. You would think that if God himself wrote it, we should never make an error in copying the the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, God himself wrote it. But I found this, and so this is just like a silly little error um, that, that hopefully will make you laugh and not think much more of it than that. But um, there's this 1631 King James Version of the Bible that was copied in London. It's called... <laughs> It's called the Wicked Bible, or the Sinner's Bible, or the Adulterer's Bible. And they made a typo, a pretty huge typo. And the the commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. But somehow, they forgot the word not. It's like, gosh, guys, like someone, who was editing that day? Golly. And so this Bible actually exists. It's in... It's in, you know, you could probably find, uh, it'd probably be, I don't know, it's probably collector's items, but I don't, I'm not sure how many of these Bibles were copied and made. They were probably tried to find them and destroy them. But anyways, that, there is, you go to a museum, I guess. Uh, I was watching YouTube videos about the wicked Bible. And, um, and so it's out there. And so this Bible says, thou shalt commit adultery. It says that in the Bible, but it says that in just one. And so we would just laugh about it, hopefully, as Christians, and say, that was just an error that crept in to the text of the King James Bible, and we could all laugh about it and know that it's obviously a mistake, right? We can all laugh. Okay, good. So, carrying right on, besides that rabbit trail, getting back on the real trail, um, Going back to the question, did God write the Bible? Well, he did write that one passage, the Ten Commandments. But some of the passages are direct dictation from God. Here's a picture of uh, Jeremiah receiving a word from the Lord. They have a have it, uh, artis- artistic representation of a light coming down in Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah must be saying it, and then the scribe is writing it. And so that would be direct dictation from God to us. And there's passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that are that, that are God speaking to his people, thus saith the Lord. And so it's what God said. So did God write the Bible? Well, literally he wrote the Ten Commandments. Maybe some of it is direct dictation. Others of it, though, like I said, is is letters. Like this, this guy is a art, artistic representation of John. And so when he wrote First, Second, and Third John, those are letters from him to other Christians. And so we, like, are reading someone else's mail, basically, when we read First, Second, and Third John. But it's like, whoa, this is just isn't anybody's mail. This is John, like John the Beloved. John, the guy who uh, woke, uh, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus, was one of his disciples. And so I want to read his mail. He had probably had something important to say to Christians in his time. And so did God write that, First, Second, Third John? We'd say, well, no, John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, but God is obviously a part of it because what this man had to say 
his words go a long way with us, so much so that we hold them up as scripture and say, what this guy said, John, is so important because he knew Jesus. He talked with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus. He knew what he was talking about. So that, that makes its way into scripture, even though God himself did not write it. Um, a lot of the Bible, though, is history, like the story of David and Goliath, for instance, in First Samuel. And this painting is a little gory. It's by Caravaggio, one of my favorite Baroque artists. Uh, but anyways, much of the Bible is history, like and this story happened, and then this story happened. And, and by the way, we have something pretty awesome in the text of Scripture because history usually doesn't happen as clear. History doesn't get as passed on as clearly as it did in Scripture for us as it did uh, maybe with some other stories. So here's, here's an example. This is Alexander the Great. He lived in the 300s-ish uh, B.C., and Alexander the Great, you know, the great king of Greece, Macedonia, a student of Aristotle. And so we, he lived in 300s uh, BC. We have histories of him written around 100 AD. The, some of the earliest ones are from 100 AD. Like, is it Plutarch's uh, life, of, uh, life of Alexander? His writing was 300 years after Alexander the Great lived. And so think about that for just a second and think, Wait, here's, here's this piece of writing, this history that we have now that there was 300 years of time that passed between when Alexander the Great lived and this document. Could myths have um, floated into that? Could um, differences have floated into that writing in 300 years? Yeah, I would say that's probably very likely. In fact, Alexander the Great claims that he was related to Hercules. Wait. Hercules, like the guy that holds up the earth, like the mythological figure? Like clearly that's myth that crept into the story of Alexander the Great. There's, there's contradictions over how he died. One story says he got a fever and he was laying in bed and he got to say goodbye to all his men and then he died. Another story of how Alexander the Great died is they say he was at like a raging kegger and he drank a bunch of alcohol and then fell down dead. It's like, dude, that's, that's, crazy, but that's obviously a very different story than getting the fever, don't you think? And so here's two contradictory reports over how this man died. Some of it's contradictory over his character. One says, uh, one history says he never lost his temper. One history says he always lost his temper. Here's some examples. And so wait, which one is it? Obviously, myth and, and contradictions floated into the context of this history of Alexander the Great and the 300 years in between Alexander the Great's life and what we now have is the history. So, is that similar to what the Bible, how the Bible was given to us? No. For instance, we have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they, two of them at least, we know, Matthew and John, were disciples of Jesus. Eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And we also know that the other two, Mark and Luke, were written at the time of eyewitnesses. So they didn't let 300 years pass by before they started interviewing people about Jesus was, or looking at very ancient documents at, of 300 years ago documents. No, they were right there. They, they, they gave an eyewitness account of what they saw. The, the Gospels were written at the same time as the eyewitnesses. And that's a miracle in the ancient world, that someone would take the time at the very time of the eyewitnesses to create accounts, and that those accounts would be passed on, and that we now have them today. Uh, that, that's just very unlike how the ancient world's histories 